0: From the Heidelberg Catechism, let's now read together Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them with a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, And do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our catechism preaching, we've been dealing with various aspects of our sins and misery. In Lord's Day 2, we've dealt with the knowledge of our sins and misery, knowing our sins comes from comparing our hearts and lives with the law of God. By doing this, we came to see that we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. In Lord's Day 3, we dealt with the cause and extent of our depravity. Our evil nature is a result of the fall into sin. Through the fall, our nature became so corrupt that we're all conceived and born in sin. We learned that unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, we remain unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. That brings us to Lord's Day 4. In this Lord's Day, various escape routes are examined. Man is looking for a way out of the miserable position in which he's placed himself. Three times we try to get out, to get away from the consequences of the fall into sin. First, by the inability defense. The argument here is that we cannot keep the law, so God is not fair in asking us to keep it. Second, by the overlook option. The argument here is that perhaps God will just overlook our sins without punishing our disobedience. And third, by the mercy alternative. The argument here is that since God is merciful, perhaps He will forget about His justice and just let us off the hook. Yet our catechism. Blocks all these attempted escape routes. It does not allow us to claim mitigating circumstances to try to get off the hook. Instead, it teaches us that we are responsible for our own sins. The Catechism explains that God is displeased with our sins. He will not just overlook them. There is no plea bargaining with God. He's faithful, He keeps His word. And as such, he will punish our sins with uh, just judgment. The catechism also teaches that we cannot play off God's justice with his mercy. As judge, God requires that sin committed against his holy majesty be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And so, beloved, we see how our catechism slams the door on all our possible escape routes. It does so for a very good reason. It wants us, it wants to teach us to admit our sins before God, to take responsibility for them. It wants to teach us how great our sins and misery are, so we may see our great need for deliverance. For it's only in that way that we'll see how badly we need Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. There is no escaping sinner punishment outside of Jesus Christ. We'll see that there is no excuse for sin. There's no escape from punishment. There's no mercy without justice. Beloved, we all have a keen sense of justice. We know what's right and what's wrong. When we've been had by someone... When someone stabs us in the back, that sense of justice comes out in us. We're offended, even outraged, that someone would do something like that to us. Typically, our response would be, that's not fair. He or she had no right to do that. We're offended because of the unfair way in which someone has dealt with us. In question answer nine, We turn our sense of justice towards God. We admit we're sinners. We know we cannot keep the law. God knows that too. He knows that we're prone to stumble. So why does he require us to keep a law we cannot keep? Why does he hold us accountable to such a high standard? That's not fair. We can't help it that we are this way. And so we try to escape God's wrath by pleading the inability defense. Catechism poses this in the form of a question. It asks Is God then not unjust by requiring his law what man cannot do? This type of escape route is something we're quite familiar with in the world in which we live. In our human courts, people use this approach more often. They make excuses to try to duck out from the responsibility of what they've done. In murder cases, people will plead not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. They use the excuse that they just lost it for a minute to escape punishment for taking someone else's life, or else they'll claim mitigating circumstances. They point to the fact that they come from a broken family, that they had a terrible upbringing, to try escape punishment for their crimes. While this may sometimes work in our human courts, it's not a viable escape route for us in our relationship with God. For God is not unjust, in requiring us to keep his law. He created man in such a way that man was able to do it. Last week, we saw how God created man in his image. He created man good and righteous and holy. Man was able to keep God's law. Man was created in such a way he could know God, love God, And live with God in eternal blessedness. For us, there are no mitigating circumstances. We cannot make excuses because of our background. God created man perfectly. He made us in such a way we could keep his law. The reason why we cannot keep God's law today is because we fell into sin. Our catechism makes this very clear. It says that man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Note how the Catechism lays the blame squarely at our feet. While it mentions that we were tempted to do wrong by the devil, it still holds us responsible for the fall into sin. Man acted in deliberate disobedience. God said, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make man wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. God had said, no, but man decided, yes, man disregarded God and went his own way. Because of this, it's totally illegitimate for us to try and say, God is being unfair in his dealings with man. It's through our own sin that we've robbed ourselves of the great gifts God gave us in paradise. The fact we're unable to keep the law is our own fault. Must God throw out the law because we've broken it? Should the laws of our land be thrown out because people disobey them? It's absurd. The point is not that the standards of the law need to be lowered. Instead, the point is that we sinners need to find a way to be reconciled to God. God. Our catechism teaches there's no excuse for our sins. Instead, it directs us to find a solution for them. That's what our scripture reading from 2 Samuel 12 also teaches us. In this passage, we see how the prophet Nathan uses David's strong sense of justice in order to convict him of his own sins. Nathan comes to David to tell him a story about two men, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. When a traveler came to visit the rich man, he refused to take up his own flock to prepare a meal for him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb, an animal that had been hand-fed, that was very dear to him. David's sense of justice is aroused. He became very angry against the rich man. He told Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. Because he had no pity. As king of Israel, David had the power to enforce such a judgment. Now all Nathan had to do was tell David who it was that had done such a terrible thing. Nathan does. He said to David, You are the man. Nathan pointed out to David the rich blessings that God had given him. God had anointed him king. He had delivered him from the hand of Saul. He had given him the kingdom and would have given him more if he asked for it. Yet David had despised the commandment of the Lord and done evil in his sight. He had killed Uriah. He had taken his wife for his own. Blatantly, he disregarded God's commandments in in order to fulfill his own desires. Despite all God's rich blessings, David deliberately disobeyed God's law. What 2 Samuel 12 makes clear is that there was no excuse for David's sin. He had taken another man's wife. And when he couldn't cover up his sin, he had had Uriah killed. Then he had brought Bathsheba to the palace and she became his wife. David's sin was done intentionally. And yet he did not repent. He covered up his sin and he went on. With his life. From a human perspective, there were no comebacks. And yet God in heaven had seen what David did. It displeased the Lord. That's why he sent Nathan to tell David the story of the rich and poor man. To point out his sin to him. It is beautiful to see David's response to Nathan's charge. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to claim any mitigating circumstances. He takes full responsibility for what he's done. And he confesses his sin before the Lord. That's what we need to do, do too, beloved. We need to take full responsibility for our sins. Our sins must drive us to our knees before God. For if we don't take responsibility for our sins, there's no forgiveness for them. If we don't confess our sins before our Heavenly Father, He will continue to hold them against us. Beloved, listen to the effect that David's sins had on his life before he confessed them. He speaks of that in Psalm 32. This psalm tells us about how David sullenly kept his mouth closed. Though his conscience accused him, yet he would not speak to God about his sin. The result was that his bones wasted away through his groaning all day long. For day and night, God's hand weighed heavily upon him. David says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David learned what we all learn that every transgression is an offense against God, that we never get the satisfaction we expect from any sin. Or if we get it, we get something with it that spoils it all. Pleasures of sin always come with a very high cost. For the pleasure disappears in a moment. But we carry the guilt with us for a long time. It's as it says in Proverbs 20, verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. You see, beloved, when we sin, our relationship with God is threatened. If we don't seek forgiveness, the peace And the joy that only God can give are taken away. No repentance means no forgiveness. That means our communion with God is blocked. So we see how important it is not to make excuses for our sins. Instead, we need to confess them to seek forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. In our first point we've seen there's no excuse for sin. In our second point we we'll see there's no escape from punishment. In question and answer 10 of the catechism man tries to escape the consequences of the fall by suggesting that perhaps God will just overlook our sins. We know that we are guilty of sin and that there's no excuse for our sins. But maybe God will just look the other way. And so we try to escape the wrath of God by pleading the overlook option. The idea here is that God just turns the other way and forgets about our sins. Our catechism suggests this by asking Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? This type of escape route is, again, something that we're familiar with in our lives. Just think about the relationship between parents and children. A child who has done something wrong may say, I'm sorry, Mom, I won't do it again. Mom overlooks the wrong and the child's not punished. What do you think? Will God deal with us that way too? Can't he just look the other way? And allow our disobedience to go unpunished? The answer is certainly not. God is terribly displeased with our sins, and He will punish them with a just judgment both now and eternally. The point here is that God is faithful to His covenant, He always keeps His word. That applies to the promises of the covenant, but it also applies to the demands of the covenant and to God's covenant wrath. Catechism stresses this when it says, Therefore God will punish our sins by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. God's justice requires that each and every one of our sins be punished. He cannot and will not just overlook our sins. Does this mean that we have to suffer under God's curse? That we have to bear God's wrath against all our wrongdoing? Does God still punish our sins today? We need to make some careful distinctions here, beloved. Please note that the Catechism nowhere speaks about God punishing us. It speaks about the fact that God will punish our sins by a just judgment. Question answer 11 reinforces this when it says that God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The point is that while payment needs to be made for our sins, it's not necessarily we who will have to make that payment. We see this very clearly from our scripture reading. Remember the judgment that David spoke upon the rich man? who had stolen his poor neighbor's lamb in order to feed a traveler that stayed with him. David had said, the man who has done this deserves to die. And yet when David confesses his sins before God, Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David himself does not need to bear the punishment he deserves for his sin. The Lord forgives his sin. But God does not do so by looking the other way. Payment will still need to be made for David's sin. The only thing is that David himself will not need to bear God's wrath. Instead, it would be poured out on the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, beloved, what should be clear is that although David did not have to bear God's punishment for his sin, he did have to suffer the consequences of his sin. Because he had Uriah killed by the sword, the Lord stated that the sword would never depart from his house. And because David had committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, God said that he would give David's wives into the hands of his neighbor. Adversity would arise from within David's own house. And besides that, because David had given his his enemies an opportunity to blaspheme God's name, Nathan told David that the child born to him would surely die. These were the consequences of David's sin. So we see that while God's children may suffer some consequences from their sins, we're not punished for them. God's heavy wrath does not come down upon those who are sorry for their sins and who confess them before Him. And yet, beloved, make no mistake. God's curse will rest on those who do not repent of their sins. Christ's blood will not cover them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10 says, "'Know therefore that the Lord your God is God.'" The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who fear him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that even in the new covenant, God will not allow disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. In Romans 1.18 he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul explains that because many people have rejected God, he gives them over to their own sins. That's a very heavy punishment indeed. For the pursuit of a sinful lifestyle leads to much misery here on earth. And as Paul explains in Romans 2, Such people are also treasuring up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. For wrath and fury, tribulation and distress will come on those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. That brings us to our final point. And we'll see, there is no mercy without justice. Man tries one final escape route to try to avoid the consequences of the fall into sin. Since the inability to fence and the overlook option have failed, man now pleads the mercy alternative, tries to play God's mercy against God's justice. Our catechism poses this attempted at escape in the form of a question But is God not also merciful? Our catechism answers in a straightforward way. God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. It explains that God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. In other words, we cannot use the mercy alternative to try and get around God's justice. God will not just let us off the hook for our sins. His justice requires that payment be made for them. And the payment required is a very heavy one. God's justice requires that sin committed against him be punished with the everlasting punishment of body and soul. So how can we overcome our miserable position? How can we escape God's wrath against our sins and again be restored to his favor? Our scripture reading from 2 Samuel 12 points the way out. It shows us that despite David's fasting and prayers, the Lord did not heed his pleas to save his son. The first child born to David, the Bathsheba, died in accordance with the word of the Lord. And yet the story does not end there. We also read, From 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25. It tells us that another son was born to David and Bathsheba. And then carefully note what it says. It says, And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The Lord loved this son whom David had named Solomon. So David gave him another name, Jedidiah. you know what that name means? It means loved by the Lord. In this name we see God's great mercy and compassion shine forth. In it we see his steadfast love for his people and we see God's faithfulness to his covenant. Despite the fact that God had said the sword would never depart from David's house, God still maintained his promise that one of David's descendants would remain on the throne. David's son, Jedidiah, the one loved by the Lord, pointed to the coming Messiah who would proceed from out of David's line. He pointed To Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, who would come to restore us to God's favor. Beloved, it is in Jesus Christ that God's justice and His mercy come together. These two attributes of God seem to be such opposites, and yet in Christ they're not. For in Christ, God revealed both his justice and his mercy. At Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, God revealed his justice by pouring out his wrath upon the man, Jesus Christ, by placing the full curse of the law on him. At Golgotha, God also revealed his mercy by granting us the satisfaction of Christ and thereby declaring us not guilty of our sins through him. Thus, on the one hand, it is true. There is no mercy without justice. And yet the gracious message of the scriptures is that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins, that through him we can seek God's favor And so, beloved, we see there is no escaping sin or punishment outside of Jesus Christ. We can try and make excuses for our sins, but they'll fall on deaf ears. We are responsible for our sins, and God will hold us accountable for them. We can try and escape from punishment, And yet, even if we get away with wrongdoing in this life, we will still have to face the judge of heaven and earth on the final day. We can plead on God's mercy, but that will not count for anything if we do not believe in Jesus Christ. There is only one way to escape from God's wrath against our sins. That is, by confessing them to God and asking Him to forgive us for the sake of Christ, His dearly loved Son. Have you done that, beloved? Have you confessed your sins before the throne of grace? And have you discovered the peace and the joy of being restored? to communion with God. True life and abundant blessings can only be found in Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from Psalm 51, stanzas 2 and (laughs) 6.